Welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse. We believe all survivors should have access to justice and resources to help them heal from the trauma of sexual abuse. Our host, Shaughnessy Terrell, is a member of Cohen and Malad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney who has tried hundreds of cases against sexual predators. Join us as we talk with survivors and various community members who are taking action to normalize the conversation around sexual abuse in the pursuit of justice and healing. This is Support for Survivors. Hello everyone, this is your host, Shauna C. Terrell. Welcome to Support for Survivors. Today we are happy to welcome Kelly Downing to our show. Welcome Kelly, so happy to have you. Thank you, Shauna C. I'm so happy to be here. We're always so interested in bringing on people who have kind of been through all of this kind of thing and have come out the other side and just sharing their journey and where they're at and where they've come from. And so I really, really appreciate it so much that you're here. So let's get into your background a little bit. Can you just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, where you're from, what you do, things like that? Sure. Well, um, I'm originally from Ohio, which feels important. That's where my family is from. And um, I was born into a ministry family. So my dad was called to the mission field. That's what people called it at the time. Sometimes I say my dad was bipolar. And so we ended up being missionaries. (laughs) um, He was called to the mission field. He would be devastated if he heard me say that. So not going (laughs) to let him listen to this. But um, yeah, he packed up five little kiddos and traveled us all over the country. Yeah, they like to pop out babies. And we just traveled all over the country raising money and support so that we could go to Indonesia as missionaries. And so, you know, as a small kid, you don't realize how hard it is um, because it's kind of just your life. It's what you do. So we traveled a lot. We were in different churches every Sunday um, that I remember and just a very different childhood from what a lot of people had. And then on my sixth birthday, we landed in Malaysia where we, yeah, we stayed for a few months so my parents could learn the Indonesian language. And from there we moved to Indonesia. So I was very much my whole life, a, an MK. And then after my parents were missionaries, I was a a pastor's kid. So it's just been a whole lot of growing up in the church and constantly being there every time the doors are open. If those doors were, you know, here in the States or overseas in like, you know, a church with a mud floor and chickens walking around, like, um, I just grew up in it for sure. That's crazy. Um, And like you said, as a kid, you don't know, it's just your normal, but now like with a frame of reference, you probably know that most kids don't grow up that way. And so I can remember in church, um, when I was little, and we had missionaries and I think Zimbabwe and I thought it was the coolest thing. You know, I was like, I want to go do that. Like it looked so neat to be able to go and immerse yourself in that culture. But of course, again, as a child, I wouldn't have thought of all of the, how hard it would have been both as a parent, you know, and it's different for the kids too. It is. It's very different. And do you mind sharing what denomination the church that you grew up in was? Um, so we spent, we spent time in different denominations and for the first eight years of my life, I think that we were independent fundamental Baptists. And my dad, you know, he met friends on the mission field and people who were part of different denominations. And so we switched denominations. We were, oh goodness, we were charismatic at one point. We were in the Assemblies of God at one point, Southern Baptist, then back to Baptist. It was just like wow. kind of an all, all over the map sort of a thing. And while there were differences 
in obviously some of the theology and stylistically at their core, I think it was all pretty much evangelical Christianity that I grew up in, in different denominations of basically the same faith system. Gotcha. So while they may not have been like interconnected, all of them, it was still kind of the basic, same basic fundamental belief system that they were operating under. Right. Okay. Right. And so, I mean, I think it's safe to say that the church played a very instrumental role in your upbringing. <laughs> it definitely did. It shaped everything I believed about myself and my family and life and God. And so, yeah, it was just very much uh, the core of who I was growing up. So let's get into what happened. And I know that you are a survivor of clergy abuse. So can you tell us just a little bit about that so we can see, you know, where you're coming from and why, you know, you're doing what you're doing now? Of course. So as a six-year-old, my family had moved from Malaysia to Bandung, Indonesia, and we went to this little church there and the church was very familiar with missionaries. Um, it was an independent fundamental Baptist church um, that had been established by missionaries who had been there before us. And the pastor and his wife were a lovely couple and the pastor's wife had a brother. And at the time he was a young adult, 19, 20 years old, and he was not a member of the clergy at the time. He was just a member of the church. And mm -hmm. so he was one of the first people that we met when we got to Indonesia. And he was just this person that the kids loved. We sure. called him Uncle Jerry. And he was just a fun guy who uh, would, he was an artist. So he would constantly like color his pictures. He would take us on like piggyback rides and play games with us. He would bring us like, you know, candy. And of course it was a very poor country and people didn't have a lot of money, but like little things, you know, mm -hmm. and we just loved him. And coming from a family of five kids, especially all of us like stair steps, my mom had her first child when she was 20 and her last when she was 25. And there are Holy. five of us. So. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it was just like, there was not enough attention to go around. And I was a pretty shy kid, which is kind of funny looking at the way that I am now, but I was, I was quiet and shy. And, um, he just like brought out my playful side and was just somebody that we really trusted and we really cared about and our family cared about him. Mm -hmm. And so I realize now looking back that this was just a part of the grooming process right. and you know, not only grooming me, but my family as well to, to trust him. And, you know, every missionary trusted him. They trusted him with their kids. And I remember one day, and as a child, I always thought that this was so like random. And as I learned more and more about sexual abuse, before I even decided to speak out about it, it suddenly dawned on me that the things that I thought as a child were just these random events that had happened were things that were actually really orchestrated by him. For instance, he came over to my house for the first time when my parents were gone. And I just thought, oh, coincidence, he said he needed to use the phone, but my parents were gone with his sister and brother-in-law mm -hmm. um, looking at houses and, and doing something. So he knew that my parents were going to be gone and using the phone was like an excuse. And so he came in the house and he started playing games with me and my sister and she got disinterested very quickly and went to another room and we had a housekeeper like that was very common overseas. Every family had a housekeeper, somebody to help around the house. And I, I don't even know where she was at the time, but they were in the house and they were within like 
I shot. And that's when he began the first day to sexually abuse me. And I didn't even know that that's what was happening. I mean, obviously I was six, but I honestly didn't feel as it was happening, happening, that it was something that was wrong. Mm -hmm. He, he made me feel more like I thought, Oh, I have like a special relationship with him or he's my boyfriend or something. And as a six year old, like it doesn't make any sense, but in my mind, like sure. that's just what it was. And it was very subtle. It was, it started with like, we're going to play this game, but I'm not going to spin you around unless you give me a kiss on the cheek. And it just went from there like, Oh, and now you need to just give me a peck on the lips. And like, it went from there. And so it was very much like this innocent or seemingly innocent thing. And before you know it, you're like complicit. I mean, not, not actually, but in your mind, you feel like you're complicit in your own abuse. That's such an important point for people to hear because I think that they don't understand because first of all, you're dealing with a six-year-old child. And so they don't understand the ramifications or really the acts that are even happening, but it is, it's not like usually, you know, an abuser comes in and tries to actually, you know, rape a child at first. It's those incremental things, especially if they've been grooming, not only you and your family, but especially in clergy abuse, it's the entire church, just like you said. So, cause they don't want, you know, and then if the kid does tell, you know, they want it to be a situation where everyone won't believe because there's just no way it could be that guy. Right. That's, it's exactly what they do. And I think that's an important part of, you know, sharing about sexual abuse and something that people really need to know. And that is that sexual abuse is not typically, is not typically violent when it's, when you're talking about childhood sexual abuse, it can be, but I think that for the vast majority of people, it is, you know, it's, it's sexual abuse and we don't understand that that's what it is. And it's something that a child is tricked into, and then they feel complicit in, and that complicity that they feel creates this shame. That's like, well, I can't ever tell. Cause I'm the person who did this. Yep. And he came to our house a few more times, sexually abused me a few more times. One of the times my parents were out of town and the pastor and his wife were, were watching us. My mom had to have a surgery and they were watching us for days. And I didn't, I thought that was random as well. And I'm like, I know there were tons of people in the house and he still managed to get me alone and in a bedroom. And he wasn't like scared of being caught. And his niece actually kept trying to get into the room where he was abusing me. And I remember, you know, him being annoyed and like he would turn off the light and shut the door and she'd come in and turn it on. So I feel like she really saved me from what his plans really were for me, which were a lot more sinister than what I actually experienced. I think I was in the beginning stages of his plans for me, which were bad enough. You know, yeah. it's abuse that has affected me for my life. So it, I think it was three separate instances. And there was just this, just this shame. And I remember that that's the first time I started feeling like sick all the time. I had stomach aches, constantly as a child. And I would call it morning sickness. And my mom would get so mad at me, but it was always <laughs> in the morning. Like I would wake up in the morning and I would immediately recall that I had been abused or that I had done this bad thing, which was how my brain was interpreting it. And that bad thing haunted my entire childhood. I didn't realize that like anxiety ran in my family. And I don't recall experiencing anxiety up to that point. But I remember the first day that I was abused going over to a friend's house and Jerry, my abuser was still at my house and still molesting me when they pulled up, like to pick me up. And I gave him this hug goodbye. And that was when I felt like I knew that my body felt strange. I knew that I felt like this weird tingly, like just strange, something felt strange, but I didn't know yet that it was something bad. 
And that night, as I laid down on this mattress on the floor at my friend's house, cause I was spending the night with her and I started to drift off to sleep. That's when I had my first feeling of like bad anxiety. And I didn't know it was anxiety at the time because my body interpreted it as this sick feeling. And I called it a sick feeling my whole life until probably in my thirties when somebody in my family was like, you have anxiety, by the way. I'm like, <laughs> no, I don't. What? <laughs> that's what that um, is. <laughs> really? Those, the, that sick feeling that makes me like shake and throw up and all that's anxiety. So crazy. Um, I just had no, I literally had no idea. And I will say that one of the reasons I had no idea was because in the church, a lot of what was taught to me and maybe not overtly, because when I bring this up, sometimes people are like, they don't teach that in the church, but everything to me was a spiritual problem. Everything. If somebody mm -hmm. had a mental health issue, if somebody had anxiety or depression, if, if somebody was worried about something, every single thing was a spiritual issue. And it was based on either you're not trusting God enough, or you're, you know, doing some, you're sinning somehow. And that's mm -hmm. causing this, you know, issue in your life. And I, I hate that for people who, mm -hmm. who are in the church. I hate it. Like it's, it's something I talk about a lot on the podcast is like our bodies react to things. And just like you can get diabetes, like you can get a chemical imbalance in your brain and just mm -hmm. like, like you can pass down certain genes, you can pass down anxiety, you can pass down trauma, like it literally changes your DNA to where you can pass it down to your children and grandchildren. And like, that's a scientific thing. And the Bible even talks about, you know, the sins of the father being visited on the young. And I feel like it, science shows us that it's rewriting our DNA and passing down uh, generational trauma. So mm -hmm. I think that did a, like a disservice to me for sure. But at the time, as you know, especially as a six year old just didn't know, all I knew was I felt sick all the time, mm -hmm. called it morning sickness. When I would see my abuser, one day I went to church with my parents, like after the final time that he had abused me, which was probably the most traumatic time you know, he was holding up a picture of Jesus and the disciples that it was a coloring picture. And he was sitting and coloring outside with some other little kids in Sunday school. And I had begged off of Sunday school because I just, I couldn't see him. Like I was so scared of seeing him. I was terrified. Mm -hmm. And when he saw me, he like put that picture of Jesus up and tried to play like peekaboo with me and smile. And I just remember grabbing my mom's culottes because we couldn't wear pants because <laughs> <laughs> we were Baptists in the eighties. <laughs> like, I just remember grabbing her and like burying my face and my reaction to him embarrassed my parents. Like they were really upset with me because they were thinking like, um, you're being rude to a person, especially across cultures and that looks bad, you know? Mm -hmm. And so my dad gave me like this very stern talking to telling me I was going to probably get a spanking when I got home. And then mm -hmm. not only was I like riddled with shame and fear of my abuser, but then I'm like, I'm now I'm going to get in trouble when I get home. So it was just anxiety on top of anxiety, trauma on top of trauma. And thank God my family moved from Bandung very soon after uh, my dad had always wanted to minister in Bali. And wow. so we ended up moving there. Yeah, we moved there not very long after Jerry started abusing me. And I believe like, you know, growing up, I thought, oh, God protected me from being like really sexually abused because it only happened a few times and it could have been so much worse. And I think it's that that we get that idea that it should have been violent. And because it wasn't violent, then it wasn't real abuse. I even had a 
a good friend of mine asked me once when I started to speak out, like, were you, you were sexually abused? Like, were you sexually abused all the way? And it's like, no, yeah. there's no, like, there's no all the way. Like I was groomed. I was molested and it has basically been the rudder that has steered the ship of my entire life. So it, it doesn't matter that it could have been worse. And I think that that's not only something that we tell ourselves like, you know, like, okay, it's, it's not that traumatic, but it, it's almost like self-protective, like, well, mm -hmm. it could have been worse. So I don't really have to be a victim and right. I can, everything's fine. You know, I think that's so common. And I think you're right. It can be, some of it is a defense mechanism and some of it is societally what we're taught. And this is like all sexual assault. And I go off all the time about human trafficking when it comes to this, because it doesn't look the way people think it does. And they don't right. think that's what it is. And that's just simply not true. I've had, and I've had so many clients and friends and colleagues who have said, you know, but it wasn't that bad and it could have been way worse. And I'm like, well, okay. If, that happened to your sister or your daughter or your niece, would you feel the same way? And then, you know, a lot of time the light bulb goes off and you're like, no, I would, you know, I would kill someone if they did that thing to these people I love. And it's like, well, have that same grace for yourself, you know, but it's, that's a journey. It's part of the journey. It really is. And it took me goodness um, until I was in my early thirties, I'm 42 now. And it was, maybe I was around 34 years old when I finally was like, I should probably get some counseling or something. <laughs> and I still, I still was in denial even at 34 because I just had failed relationship after failed relationship. And I had really bad anxiety related to any kind of relationship. If I liked someone or someone liked me, I would go into this basically panic and anxiety where I could not, my central nervous system couldn't relax until I was no longer in that relationship, which of course led to a lot of grief because it was like, you love someone and you care about someone, but at the same time, you can't, you can't fully invest in it because you're so preoccupied with the terror that's happening. It felt literally like being terrorized. And I bring that up just because that I think for me was the biggest effect of sexual abuse in my life was that all these relationships, I could never be in them. I just couldn't because it was like being emotionally and mentally and even physically tormented because mm -hmm. there's such a physical element. I would have anxiety attacks to the point where I could just feel like the stress hormones releasing mm -hmm. into my limbs. I, my limbs would go numb. My face would go numb. I would be shaking, wow. teeth chattering, like bad stuff. And the only way that I could be a strong person and not feel that way was just to never put myself out there emotionally. How, and did, you, how did you link it up? Because I think that a lot of people have exactly what you went through, go on in the romantic relationships and they think there's something wrong with them. And they're like, what the hell is my problem? I cannot, what, what is wrong with me? And so I think that, you know, and then sometimes for some people, the light bulb goes off and it, and it is, it's back to, you know, these things that happened when you were six years old. Right. So I did not make that link for so long. And what I did was in my first romantic relationship, I was super excited about it. And talking to a guy in college, I was 18, you know, he was my first like real boyfriend since I was a kid. And he asked me to be his girlfriend. And that was like the end goal of our like several months of talking and mm -hmm. like, you know, teehee fun teenage stuff. He asked me to be his girlfriend and that was what I wanted. Like, that's what I was excited about. It should have been great. And it was like 15 minutes later, somebody asked, so is he your boyfriend now? And I had my first anxiety attack of my adult life. 
And it not panic because I knew I wasn't dying. I always knew it was emotional and not physical. And, and mm-hmm. but it was physical, like because it's physically mm-hmm. happening in your body. That honestly ha- was the catalyst for me, not that specific relationship, but my relationship problems to get help. Okay. But what I told myself, the light bulb never clicked because because God. And the advice I would get from other people is when it's the right person, it's not going to feel like that. When it's the right person, that's not going to happen. And Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that I made perfectly healthy choices. I come from a dysfunctional family and I can see looking at some of the people that I tried to have relationships with that they were not going to be great fits Mm -hmm. for me long-term. They were other people who had their own trauma that hadn't been dealt with and things like that. So I'm not saying like it ruined like every perfect relationship, but there are some relationships that I think if I hadn't suffered from debilitating anxiety, I might be married to that person and have Mm -hmm. children, you know? So I always assigned a spiritual issue to this anxiety. And I feel like that was my upbringing. Like this is God protecting you from marrying the wrong person. And we also put such a huge emphasis on the right person and marriage is put on such a huge pedestal. And I have nothing against marriage or family or any of that. I'm all for it. And I think it's great. But I do think that we've we've created in the church, this idea of marriage that I'm not sure is biblical, (laughs) that I'm not Mm -hmm. sure that God ever intended for us Mm -hmm. to like, there's this one right person. And if you get it wrong, you're in trouble. And like, that was basically why I assigned spiritual meaning to every anxiety attack that I had. This went on for years. And I remember one time I started having anxiety attacks and I wasn't dating anybody. And that was the first time it had ever happened. So I always thought, okay, this sick feeling is God protecting me and he's keeping Uh me from marrying the wrong person. But then it started happening for no apparent reason. And I remember my dad just like, I was just bawling and he was holding me and he was like, Kelly, God doesn't do this to his children. This is not God, like he doesn't do this to people. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time. And I thought, wow, he's the most spiritual person I know. So why isn't he telling me like, you just need to read your Bible more. And instead, you know, my dad, who was probably the source of me learning, like everything spiritual was also the person Mm -hmm. who's like, this is not normal. This is not what God has for you. If God has told you specifically to do something and you're not doing it fine, but if there's nothing there, your anxiety is not from him. Like that's not, and I always thought like he's trying to tell me something by making me want to die. And I've honestly said like my anxiety, cause I'm a very usually upbeat person Mm -hmm. and I try to see the good in life. I've always been like, everything will work out in the end kind of a person. But when I would go through my anxiety attacks, I would literally understand why people would commit suicide dealing with something like that, because it was so awful that I could understand that feeling of, oh my gosh, if I weren't alive, I wouldn't have to feel this anymore. It would feel so nice to just be at peace. And so finally I kept on though, even after I thought, well, this isn't from God, but maybe it's still like, I I even had like, I I attempted therapy once a couple Mm -hmm. of times and, you know, I had even psychologists telling me like, well, maybe you're right. Maybe it is that you just know they're not the right person. (laughs) It was like, so I thought my anxiety is just keeping me from the wrong person, whether Mm -hmm. it's God or it's something else. And finally I just got to a breaking point in my life where I could, I was like, I can't live like this anymore. I cannot like, and I just, I remember praying and it was more like yelling, just like, okay, God, like, I can't do this. I cannot, this can't be my life. I can't keep feeling this way. I can't keep having relationships like this and, you know, 
being a ball of anxiety on the floor where I, I can't even function in life. Like that's not going to work for me. And it was at that point that I sought therapy Mm -hmm. and it was like, I went in thinking maybe I'll tell them I was sexually abused, but I was also a missionary kid and our lives were not stable and my family was dysfunctional. So I'll mention the sexual abuse thing, but we might not be talking about that. And it was basically like, you know, the therapist was like, okay, we're going to (laughs) change directions here and started talking to me about that almost exclusively and recommending I read some books. And I just remember I think Dan Allender, Dan Allender's book, The Wounded Heart was the first one that I read. And just the descriptions of the people he talked about in his book, I was Mm -hmm. like, this is literally my life. And he's describing it in these people that he's, you know, talking about who are abuse survivors. And it was like, I just was numb for weeks, like the realization hitting me that what had happened to me as a six-year-old kid and what I had been stuffing down and, and demanding had not had any effect on me or that I didn't deserve for it to have had an effect on me. I really thought that like, if I wasn't assaulted violently, I can't say that I was molested or sexually abused and I don't deserve to use that as an excuse for anything in my life. And it seems like such a weird way of thinking, but that's really what I I thought. And part of it was probably self-protective. I didn't want to be perceived as weak. And another part of it was just, honestly thinking like it should have been something that that was a lot more violent and traumatic Mm -hmm. for me to be affected by it. Mm -hmm. And so that's really like that was the beginning of just my eyes being open and 34 years old. It's a long time that that's when I started telling people that's when I came, you know, and opened up to my family about what had happened to me. And I had mentioned little bits. I used to say that someone messed with me. Like that was as far as I would go like, Oh, he messed with me a little bit. And that was it. But I was able to name it for what it was after I started going to therapy. And I still thought though, I'm going to keep this a secret because Mm -hmm. I don't want to mess up this guy's family. I'm sure he feels really bad for what he did to me. And like, he's probably just as horrified thinking back on it, you know, that, that it happened as I am. And then I started reading more and more and more about sexual abusers and predators and how they work and just coming to the realization that I was groomed. Mm -hmm. And some people don't like the term groomed, prepared, I think is a really good word, um, tested and prepared. I was being prepared for a sexual relationship. My family was being prepared to not believe any allegations against him if they ever came Mm -hmm. out. Lucky for this guy, you know, I didn't speak up when I was six years old. But I came to a point in my therapy and I just, I always said like, there's no reason for me to tell anybody that it was him. I can speak out about sexual abuse and, and not let anybody, you know, know who did it or, or how, you know, like people don't need to know. I can still speak out. I can still talk about my experience and try to help other people. Cause that was really important to me without saying this is the guy who did it. So I didn't want to mess up anything for his family. He was married. He had two kids. And sometimes I would see things on social media in the church that I'd come from. And I remember one day seeing a photograph of his daughter. Support for Survivors is sponsored by the law firm Cohen and Malad. Cohen and Malad attorneys have over two decades of experience helping sexual abuse survivors. We work through the civil court process to get justice and compensation that can help pay for resources needed to heal from your trauma and move forward. We are proud of the work we do in giving power to your voice. And now, back to our show. 
and she was about the age that I had been when he molested me. And there was just something in her face. And I just stopped and like froze. And I was like, I'm not the only person that he's done this to. It was a weird feeling because I literally always thought, and I guess it's very normal. You Mm -hmm. think of your experience as being yours. This was Mm -hmm. my experience. And what you don't realize is the person who orchestrated this experience for you has also been orchestrating it for probably a lot of other people. Mm -hmm. And when I realized his pattern, when I realized his planning, I know that as a 19, 20 year old, that I was not his first victim. There's no way. He was so good at what he did. You know, he knew exactly when to show up. He knew exactly what to say and do for me to trust him, for my family to trust him and to not get caught. Mm -hmm. And that just hit me like a ton of bricks. I wasn't the first victim. And then realizing that you're not the first victim also opens your eyes to the fact that you probably weren't the last either. And so it goes from being this, this was just my experience to, oh my word, this guy is a predator and nobody knows it. And he's in a church full of kids and everybody thinks it's okay. He has Mm -hmm. his own daughter and everybody thinks that's okay. And I just remember going from this adamant, like, I will never tell on this guy. I was Mm -hmm. adamant about it. And even my sister, she was like a warrior when she found out he abused me. She's like, I would never do this because this is you, your story. And this is your life. But she's like, if you told me to, I would tell the entire world Mm -hmm. what he's done and who he is. And I just remember thinking like, okay, let's appease her. And I was like, I'll pray about it. I'll pray about it. I'll pray. But in my mind, I was like, no. Never. We're never (laughs) telling anybody it's not happening. (laughs) And I think that when you start to actually tell your story, then that people get this idea that you just have this rage inside you Mm -hmm. where you want to ruin the person's life who ruined Mm -hmm. yours. And that's funny to me. I mean, not when it happens to other people, but looking at how people reacted with me is the idea that you somehow want some sort of revenge. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was really just this realization and that protector in me that I've always had that this protector in me, it was easier for me to protect other people and care about what happened to them than it was for myself. And just realizing that he had access to little girls whenever he wanted them in this position of trust. He was now the head deacon of a church. Essentially he was a pastor stand in. Yeah. That nobody knew who he really was. And even though it had been 30 years and I thought, okay, there's a chance something could have changed, but you know, psychology and science tell us that it probably didn't change, you know, especially since he'd never been caught and he'd never had to come clean. So that's when I decided I have to tell his church and the people there that he sexually abused me and that I'm scared that he's still doing it to other people. How brave, my gosh. I can't even it imagine. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure you were. I mean, and how did the process go? Were they receptive to what you were saying? Did they shut it down? So I was prepared mentally for people to not be nice to me. Here's mm-hmm. the problem with the church is that the church is made up of basically his family members. It's yeah. a very tiny church. And I always say, you know, there's a reason that, I mean, I don't want to get like all hyper-spiritual and be like, God has not blessed this church with growth in all these years. I mean, it is in a Muslim country where Christian churches are very few and far between. And, you know, so that could be an explanation for why the church has just stayed this handful of people. But the other explanation could be that it's basically a den for this predator that has access to children and no one's protecting them. So. I was prepared for it to not go well, but there was an American pastor who was American missionary who was pastoring that church at the time, just like, um, because they didn't have a pastor. 
And I contacted him because I had actually, they posted a video of this church's anniversary and I was in the video from years ago. And so I thought, well, I'll message him. And I I apologized up front. I'm like, I'm really sorry to have to tell you this. And I even planned it out like, okay, we don't want to tell him on a Saturday because he's got to preach the next morning. And that would be really unfair. I I just was thinking like, if this were my dad, like, because I knew like, he's got to get up and preach. I don't really want to lay this on him right before that happens. So I tried to, you know, but regardless, what you're telling them is something that's going to cause upheaval and Mm -hmm. be bad. And I knew this is hard. It's not like, oh, this is super easy. And you should love that I'm talking to you about being sexually abused. I was shaking, teeth chattering when I sent the email to him. And I just messaged him and said, hey, I'm really sorry that because what I'm about to tell you is going to suck. (laughs) Like, I just apologize. But I said, you know, your head deacon, Jerry, sexually abused me as a child on multiple occasions. And I said, you know, I buried it for a long time. And I really didn't think that it was important that anybody know. But I said, looking back at what happened and knowing what I know about predators now that I didn't before, I think that he's a person who has been sexually abusing children for a very long time. And I said, I'm just worried about him having access to people in the church. So I thought maybe he would be helpful. He did a lot of, oh, I'm so sorry to hear this. And then of course he wanted to talk to some men in my life, which was super offensive. I was so annoyed by that. Can I have the name of your pastor? Can I have (laughs) the number of your dad? And I'm like, I'm 34 years old. I don't need you to talk to my dad or my pastor. But I did understand that like, maybe he just wants to make sure I'm not a crazy person you know, that escaped from a mental institution and I'm sending random emails to people. But so what he did was he tried to placate me for a while and did a whole lot of nothing. He was like, Mm -hmm. well, I'm going to be busy over the next several months. And I was like, you know, with all due respect, I just told you that a man who sexually abuses children is your head deacon and you're busy for the next few months. And I realized at that point that this guy was my uncle, who is a psychologist and helped me through this process quite a bit. I reached out to him. He, he called him just a coward. He's like, yeah, Kelly, this guy's not going to do anything. He's a coward. And I was like, oh, okay, well, so one day I went to the mission board that he mm-hmm. worked for and I told them, I need to talk to you about one of your missionaries. And one of the guys was super awesome. He was very familiar with sexual abuse. I guess mm-hmm. that he had known someone who worked in the field of psychology and they knew all about how predators work. And I Mm -hmm. was so excited because that guy was going to help. But there was another guy to deal with too. And honestly, they did what needed to be done. And they told the pastor, you have to confront this, whether you feel like it or not. And they walked him through the process. So I'm grateful for that. But at the same time, they sent me their spiritual platitudes. You know, every email was like, Oh, you know, Miss Downing, the, the depth of men's depravity and how we pray. And, And I'm like, I, I'm not like, I'm grateful for people who, who want to give spiritual advice or whatever, but at the same time, not everything needs to be wrapped up in a devotional. You know, I'm talking Mm -hmm. to you about a predator and that I was sexually abused. And I, I do appreciate that that can be uncomfortable for some people and they don't know how a victim wants to be spoken to. So I tried to have a lot of grace and a lot of the people that were helping me though, didn't have the same grace. They were Mm -hmm. like, these people suck. (laughs) They're they're just not. Um, So they finally, they finally confronted him and he lied. He lied. And yeah, right. And it took quite a few sessions of really grilling him to get him to finally admit he admitted to sexually abusing me and one Indonesian child and one other missionary child. Um, And, you know, he conveniently didn't remember the name of the Indonesian child. And he said that he didn't remember abusing me. And 
they made him as a condition of his repentance, which I think is hysterical. If you need conditions for repentance, you're not <laughs> repentant. <laughs> you <laughs> you don't need the like, very definition. Right. If somebody is truly repentant, they don't need anybody to tell them what to do to show it, you know? Um, but he sent me a letter, which I did not want because I knew that it wasn't genuine. Like you make sure. somebody send a letter to me and tell me, and, and the first paragraph of his letter was like, wow, did I really do that to you so many oh years my ago? Gosh. I just, I can't really remember. That's and so, right. It really was. And so the church, I, I think that there was pushback from them because obviously they're all related to him. They're his, mm -hmm. you know, sister or brother-in-law or niece or nephew or whatever, but I guess the church was having trouble understanding why he needed to step down as the lead deacon. So they took the description of my abuse that I had written for a counselor that I put in as much detail as I could. And I shared it with the mission board just because I didn't want to write it again. I'm like, I don't want to have to write this again. I already wrote it, copy paste. Here you go. And I said, please don't share this with anybody without telling me, you know, I that's because it's, not something you want shared with a whole bunch of people. No. So the day that he stepped down as deacon of the church, because there was pushback, they stood in front of the church and read the description no. of the abuse to the entire, I mean, the congregation is small, but still that was very traumatic for me. And yeah. I had members of his family who were Facebook friends with me and blocked me on, on Facebook. And, and there is an element which a missionary told me like there there is an element of losing face in the Indonesian culture it's very common like you losing face is a big thing mm -hmm. and so I get why they might need to do it but they didn't lose face enough to block any of my other relatives like my dad or my mom <laughs> or my siblings just me yeah. right so it was yeah it was a really just weird time and I mean, I even reported him when I realized that the missionary wasn't going to the, mm -hmm. the initial pastor who just was like, yeah, I need, you know, I'm really busy. I even contacted child protective services in mm -hmm. Indonesia and tried in whatever, you know, mm -hmm. bit of the language I remembered to tell people this is something that needs to be investigated. And the whole time worrying for him and his family, because, wow. you know, in Indonesia, when people find out someone's been molesting kids, a lot of times they'll take the law into their own hands, you know, and by the time the police get there, you know, and, and I was really scared. Like, I don't want anything bad to happen to him or the people of the church. It's like an extra layer of guilt that you have and making your, it right. even more difficult to try to do something to stop him. Right. And thinking, oh, he has a wife and his wife didn't do anything wrong. Poor lady. And now she's gonna have her whole life, you know, in upheaval. But so it was just a very weird process. I got it done. And the thing that was really depressing was that even though he was no longer the lead deacon, he was still, you know, standing in front of the church and leading Bible reading and music. And there were a bunch of pictures posted that I actually sent to Child Protective Services in Indonesia mm -hmm. because it made me so angry of him doing puppet shows for <gasps> dozens of children. Yeah. <laughs> And leading ba basically what was what we would call like a vacation Bible school Oh my gosh. Um, and inviting all the neighbor kids. And it's like, nobody knows. These kids' parents don't know that he used to molest little girls for fun and, and probably still does. But that we know of, he used to, he claimed that he stopped in 1976 when he was 16 <laughs> years old. Mm, not true because I wasn't in um, Indonesia until 1986. And that's when you molested me. And I get it was a long time ago. But with someone who has a pattern of sexually abusing children and a sexual attraction to children, 
it's not something that just stops. Mm -hmm. It just isn't, you know, it's just a very different animal than Mm -hmm. any other kind of sin, you know, somebody might commit. Um, There is a very deep mental element to that. And it's not something that people just are like, oh, I think I'll stop being a child molester today. Especially since it it clearly started in his childhood, which happens with a lot of people who abuse kids. So yeah, just crazy that yes, he lost face a little bit and people know that he abused me, but he's able to say, oh my gosh, back then I wasn't really a Christian. My life wasn't really right. And once I committed my life to Jesus, you know, I stopped all that. And I just, I don't believe it for a second. I just don't. I I mean, I don't think that he's to be trusted around any child, but the church, they've gone on their merry way and, and he basically just does whatever he wants at this point. That was going to be my next question to this day. Is he still, I mean, sure they stripped him of his title lead deacon, but effectively is he still just as much a part of that church as he ever was and in contact with those children and the neighborhood children, just like he ever was. Yeah. Same thing. I mean, this was happening like immediately after I told him like, why are you guys letting him do this? And, you know, sometimes I would check and and some people don't understand what is this need to check on your perpetrator, but when justice has not been brought, and I'm not even talking about justice for myself, it's the knowledge that this man has probably been molesting kids for a Mm -hmm. really long time. And there's no proof, you know, Mm -hmm. you can, you can, know it in your heart of hearts all you want, but if you don't have proof of the exact, you know, time it happened and who it happened to, um, you don't have any recourse with the law. So there's no justice. And I think that that's what drives us sometimes to check and see, okay, what's the perpetrator up to? And you have to be in a, in the right kind of mental space right. to do it. I try not to, if I'm not in a really healthy mental space and like, just mm-hmm. stay away from that. It's just going to depress you and make you feel horrible, but it just sucks. Like it sucks to put your, to put yourself out there and to lose relationships and to have people think badly of you because that's just the church is they that's just what happens you know they Mm -hmm. people think that you know you have all these weird sinful reasons for wanting to come forward about sexual abuse and that you just need to be quiet and move on and if you really loved jesus you'd forgive everybody and, and and that would be it um so you go through all that and the person who you know is a child molester is unpunished. And this is the thing. It's not even about like punishment per se. It's keeping him away from freaking kids. Right. Don't let him around kids. Um, but they're not doing that at all. He is around kids all the time. And he's like an artist. He, he decorates really fun, cutesy, sure. you know, he's very good at stuff it. that kids love, you know, yeah. he's really good at what he does. And well, especially at this point yeah. when he's been doing it for that long, you know, I bet he, he it sounds like he was very skilled at it even then. How good is he at it now 30 years later, or even almost 40 right. years later? He's going to be really good at it, especially. And you know what? He, he he got through it. He did get found out. And guess what? Nothing happened. So right. I'm sure. I mean, he's just it's just disgusting. And, you know, I wish that we could sit here and talk about how this is just an isolated event. And this is how it is every day. And as we both know, mm-mm. Your what happened to you happens to thousands of other little girls and little boys all across the country and across the world. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a huge problem, huge problem. And I mean, just even evidenced by what happened in your case at its core, they didn't have any kind of process in place for what happened when right. someone reports it's happening. And I think that that would actually make a difference. And, you know, some people, within the churches, I think really want to do the right thing and they just don't know what to do. But some people, you know, there is a culture of silence within 
churches, and I'm not talking just about that denomination, all kinds of denominations. We've obviously seen a lot of news about the Catholic church, um, which is a whole other thing. But what do you think that churchgoers can do to help change this culture and to get us to a place where the victim isn't the one who's being blamed and we've got the right things in place to make sure that these guys don't continue to have contact with children? I think it's, it's that to me is such a, like a loaded question because I think that the first place we have to get to is for churchgoers to care that it's happening. Mm -hmm. And I know you said some people probably do care and they want to do the right thing. And I believe that I I do think there are some, but I think that there is an equal or maybe greater number of people who are so terrified of the personal consequences of believing that sexual abuse occurs, that they're not willing not just to not do anything, but they're not willing to believe that it's as big of a problem as it is. And I I had a podcast about this recently where it was like, you know, our orange jumpsuits, the answer. (laughs) I feel like people, when there are big personal consequences, then suddenly people realize, oh, I need to care that this happened and I need to report it to the police so that I don't have to go to prison or so that my church doesn't get sued. And so Mm -hmm. I, I honestly... I think that if you want to change the culture of silence, it starts with caring that sexual Mm -hmm. abuse is happening. And I hate having to say that because you think in the church, it's like, who cared more than Jesus, what people were doing to children and who gave a a harsher like warning of what would happen to anybody who, who caused a little one to stumble. And so many people are like, Oh, Jesus wasn't talking about children. Like there were a bunch of kids sitting on his lap when he said it, like he was talking (laughs) about kids and he was talking about the people what's prepared for you, people who want to hurt children, it's so much worse than anything that you could deal with on earth. So he cared. And I think that we need to care as much as he did. And that's really where it starts, which is listening to victims of sexual abuse and not just deciding that they're unforgiving and that Because again, if you can spiritualize it, if you can make it a spiritual problem, you can make it go away much easier Mm -hmm. and just say, Hey, if you would forgive and you could move on from this. And I I even had a pastor say that to me, I'm sure you're just ready to get this over with so you can move on. Well, congratulations to me. This is something that I may never be able to move on from. Not what happened to me. Like there's a lot of healing to be had. Don't get me wrong, but my anxiety hasn't gone away because I went to therapy. My anxiety, my relationship issues aren't cured magically because I went to therapy. Moving on from what happened and healing from what happened hasn't fixed a lot of the effects of sexual abuse in my life. And admitting that almost feels like you know, you get judged by people who are like, oh, you want to be a victim or you want to be, no, nobody wants to be a victim. You're, you become a victim when you are victimized, the end. Right. Like that's, that's how it that happens. Choice. Exactly. And I fought so much of my life. I'm not a victim of anything. I, this didn't affect me and I'm fine. And like that worked out really well for me. <laughs> I had so many issues. And so now I'm so much better having like mm-hmm. admitted like, okay, something did happen to me and you know, it affected me, but yeah, it's just to go back to the church thing. People I think just need to care and they need to know how bad sexual abuse is in order to care because for whatever reason, it almost seems like we'd have no issue in the church. If somebody was like, well, murderers and serial killers in the church are a prolific problem. How can we stop this? You know, if a pastor knows that somebody in his congregation is a serial killer, he's not meeting with the board. Like we need to investigate this internally and try to figure out how to cover it up. (laughs) They're calling the police because they know that being a serial killer is a horrible thing. And they know being murdered by a serial killer is a horrible thing. And I think that they need to know the same thing 
about being sexually abused? Because I think that, I mean, I, somebody posted a meme once when I first started my recovery and they said something like, you know, sexual abusers are like serial killers, but they don't kill your body. They kill your soul. And that's happening to so many people. And I think that that's what it comes down to. Changing the culture of silence is a matter of just speaking up and refusing Mm -hmm. to be silent, but you have to care first about what's happening. Otherwise it's just like, oh, how can we minimize this so that it doesn't affect me personally? And I don't have to lose friends and I don't have to, you know, Mm -hmm. have any issues from this. It's all, how can this benefit me personally? Yeah, you're absolutely it's right. Sad. It is sad. And it, it's just an added layer, you know, to the onion that also people don't get that victims and survivors go through and, you know, it's just more guilt and shame. And you're right. I, I always tell people, I wish that I could sit here and say that people, and that means just individuals, but also, you know, companies and churches and other organizations that they'll do the right thing. Cause it's the right thing. Like either you're with the perpetrator or you're with the victim. But that's not true. They will they will do their best to keep it quiet and send it down the road. And I don't know who the hell they think that they're helping when they do that because they're not helping themselves either because you're exactly right. People like me will sue them. And I hate that it has to be that way, but it does have to be that way because it is truly the only thing that gets these people to do the right thing. And it's it's just unbelievable to me. Okay, so is there anything else that you want to say that you think could be helpful to just survivors actually, no, let's talk about your podcast real quick. Oh, so you do a podcast. It's a freaking amazing podcast. Why don't you tell us? About <laughs> Thank that? you. Yeah. I started survivor sanctuary. I've always loved to talk. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I actually work in, in radio as one of my vocations. So it just made sense. Writing was just taking forever. I'm like, I have so much to say. And if I have to write it all, it's going to take a million years. So I started a podcast. It's called Survivor Sanctuary. And it's just for survivors of sexual abuse within the church Mm -hmm. or with any Christian institution. And we have some listeners who even have experienced sexual abuse outside of the church who listen as well. And it's basically just a a safe place for people who who want to learn about the problem of sexual abuse and also learn about healing from sexual abuse as well. I love it. It, We've built a a really great little community of people who, you know, can weigh in on the episodes and and talk about what they're going through and share their stories. And I just think it's a really good outlet for survivors in general, just to have a place to use their Mm -hmm. voice. And it's been a great outlet for me as well in processing some of what has happened to me and, and the things that continue happening that are so frustrating within the church. I think it's awesome. And I've listened to several episodes and I really enjoyed it. And I learned something every time I listen to. So absolutely highly recommend that. And we'll put the the link to your podcast on our page in the show notes. Anything else that you think that um, you'd like to say that you think would be helpful for survivors, churchgoers, professionals, anybody who may be listening? I think something that was said to me that I think is helpful with survivors of sexual abuse is that being brave is not about not being scared. Being brave is being scared and and doing the right thing anyway. Mm-hmm. And I think that for me, it was sending a, a Facebook message to the pastor of that little Indonesian church mm-hmm. while I was shaking <laughs> because I knew the can of worms I was opening. I didn't know if I was ready to speak. I didn't know how it was going to end up. I just knew that there was this burning in my heart that said, there are little girls who are going to be abused if somebody doesn't stop this guy. So, I mean, you've heard, you know, courage is doing it scared. And I think that that's really important. Like you speak 
And not everybody has to share their personal story. You don't have to start a podcast or get online or anything like that. But I know that a lot of people want, they feel something inside that says this has to come out and people have to know about it. Even if it's just to tell, you know, one person who, who might be able to help make a difference. And I just think it's important. Your voice matters. What happened to you matters. And, you know, even if it's not something that the whole world needs to hear or know about, I think that just for us personally as survivors, we need to know that what happened to us mattered it and it's affected our lives and that digging into it is not some selfish thing that you're doing. It's something that can actually bring you to an awesome place in your life where you can be healed and feel whole again and to not let this have power over you anymore. Thank you. That's so, I couldn't have put it better. That's for sure. Sometimes just taking that next step right in front of you and not thinking about, you know, the whole big picture sometimes. And that's how progress is made. And that first step is speaking up. We always end the show with three questions. We kind you kind of already answered the first question. What does courage mean to you? I think that, do you want to add on to that at all? (laughs) That's right. Just, I think, yeah, just doing it scared. Like you're, you're, you might be terrified, but it's being willing to do what needs to be done. Even, even if you are terrified. Great answer. What is the best piece of advice you have ever received? So I'm not sure that this is necessarily, I mean, it is advice in a sense when it comes to understanding predators. And I think that this is something the church struggles with a lot. And that is that niceness is not a character trait. And I think that that, that Dr. Anna Salter touches on that in her book, Predators, but we're like, oh, this is such a nice person. This person is so nice. And somebody being nice immediately puts us at ease as though nothing wrong could happen here, but anybody can be nice. Serial killers can be nice. Mm-hmm. Child molesters are nice all the flipping time. Oh yeah. And it's not, kindness is a character trait. Niceness is not at all. And I think that it's really important for the church to be able to separate those two things and people in general, someone's niceness is not symbolic of who they are as a person. I'm sure that some of the worst people in the world have been nice a lot of times in their lives. So it's part of the manipulation. So absolutely great advice. And lastly, what is one question that you wish more people would ask you? I think, I think that it's probably, why is it so important to talk about sexual abuse? Why does it matter? I I wish that more people would ask that question rather than making assumptions. You know, I think a lot of people assume that you talk because you can't move on. You Mm -hmm. talk because you're stuck in some Mm -hmm. victim cycle. You talk because you want revenge. And I wish people would just come out and ask, so why is it that you talk about sexual abuse? And for Mm -hmm. me, the answer to that question is obviously because I've seen the destruction that sexual abuse can do. I've seen how three 15 minute sessions, maybe longer with one person have literally steered my entire life and not in a good way. You know, I've, I've seen how it can happen. I believe that sexual abuse, if you wanted to destroy a population of people and just like wreak havoc on them, I think that would be the quickest and easiest way to do it because so quickly you can literally change someone's entire life for the worse. And I think that that's an important question to ask, like, why does this matter? And why is it important? And it's because this destroys lives. And if more people cared about that destruction, we could really change, we could change things like you're never going to stop sexual abuse, but we could definitely make more people aware of what's going on, and less people being led as lambs to the slaughter in churches every Sunday. 
Wow. Thank you so much. I, this has been one of my favorite episodes by far. Um, Thank you. I think you have a great way of, you're very well-spoken. So I think that it, it, people are really going to be able to respond to that and hear what you're saying. And you have a great ability to break things down and make it pretty simple for people to understand. So hopefully we'll get some more people who do understand, but thank you for coming on and thank you for having your podcast and everything that you do and, and for speaking up because just like you said, that's how change is made. And if we could all start to speak up, then maybe we will get to that place someday. All right. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. You're so happy. And to our listeners, as always, thank you for listening. Please submit any questions or requests for guests at supportforsurvivors.com. And we will see you next time.